I want you to turn to John 17 and 2 John, those two books. John chapter 17 and then Little John or 2 John. And we'll look in both of those to begin with this morning. Now, our subject is union with Christ. Union with Christ. You might say, what exactly does that mean? Well, we'll tell you in just a moment. In John chapter 17 and verse 20, this is that high priestly prayer of Jesus in the garden right before he was taken to be crucified. Verse 20 He said, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. That would be us. That they all may be one. As thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. How can it ever be possible? In the many years that I have been a Christian, this seems to be one of those things that just never comes in place, that believers can be one, harmony and unity. I've never seen it work. It will, because it won't work for everybody, but it'll work for some, and it will. But Jesus' prayer was that we all may be one. Not just those that were in his day amongst his disciples, he said, but for all those who will believe on me through their word. In 2 John, as we talk about union today, remember, union simply is a word which means coming together as one. Obviously, the word unity comes from that. Marriage is a union, a marriage union. It's when two people are joined together as one, but it'll take a while for that oneness to be realized amongst them. How many of you know that a lot of people get married and never become harmoniously involved with each other in mind, purpose, and desire? They seem to live two different places. But a union is when two merge together and they become one in mind, purpose, direction, and so forth. That's the way it's supposed to be. And spiritual unity will always be the result of being conformed to the image of Christ. There's no other basis for unity amongst us. We're all too different. And the only thing that'll be common amongst any of us here is Jesus Christ. And we will never be in harmony with him until we're willing to be, and we'll never be in harmony with each other until we are willing to be Christ-like in our life. There can be no difference between the Jesus in you and the Jesus in me. And to the degree that one Jesus has his way in our life is to the degree that that we will be in harmony with each other. And we'll never be in harmony with each other until we're in harmony with him. There will never be unity in the church until the members of the church are in union with Jesus Christ. Never. We can have meetings and have religion and do all the great things that we try to do, but we'll never have union until we're with him. Now notice in 2 John, verse 9, we were there last week. It's this narrow. Whoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth In the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. Now, we're adding to this equation this morning that union is going to be based on a doctrine. That is, the word doctrine means teaching. We're going to be led to what we're supposed to be as we are taught what we're supposed to be. If nobody teaches us what we're supposed to be, if we're not encouraged in being what the Bible says we're supposed to be, if this isn't made clear to us, We're just going to be religious people with our own opinions and our own ideas. And we'll say, well, that's the way you all see it, or that's the way they do it, but for us. And still, we're in two different places. But he goes on to say in verse 10, If there come any unto you, and bring not this doctrine, this doctrine of Christ, the teaching concerning Christ, 
If any man come to you and bring not that, he said, receive him not into your house, nor bid him Godspeed. You'll have to look hard today to find people with that much courage who've been in this walk for this many years. Just somehow we're so affected by the world and this idea of what love and togetherness is that we tolerate most any kind of sinfulness or belief in order to just get along. That's why many in the modern church today say doctrine divides. Well, of course it does. Of course it does. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace. I brought a sword. A man's enemy sometimes will be in his own house because some are going to believe what he said and some are going to oppose what he said. And people are going to say, if you wouldn't have such strong beliefs, we could get along. But that's back to this here. This is pretty narrow. Now, last week, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10, and it said this concerning us as a church, and about union and harmony amongst us. Paul said, I pray that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. Now, how are we ever going to be joined together in the same mind and the same opinions or the same judgments. How can this be? Well, it goes back to what I've already said. Unless we are taught the right way, we cannot walk a right way. But just being taught the right way doesn't mean you want to live a right way. It has to be something in your heart that's attached to God or something that God does to your heart that draws you to him so that his way becomes your way. His life becomes your life. His invitation becomes your hope. You want to live on his terms because that, in essence, is what Christianity is. It is us living on his terms. And we can't unless somebody teaches us. Because if nobody teaches us what those terms are, then all we're going to have is religion with a lot of busyness, a lot of fads, a lot of followings, a lot of new things a lot of trying this and trying that and excitement. All of that without the word leads nowhere. And we've seen it. I have for all the years I've been where I am. I have seen that for years and years. Now, would you turn to Ephesians 4? That's where we were last week. And I want to continue there this week. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, Paul emphasizes oneness and what it takes for us individually to become one. He says, with all, verse 2, with all lowliness of mind and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the name of our church clean. No. What he's saying, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's only one thing in this room this morning amongst all of us from the different backgrounds we came from, the different parts of the country, the different ways that we all learned growing up. Only one thing is common to all of us other than breathing and eating and sleeping and, and being human beings. It's Jesus. That's the only thing we all have in common. We're all drawn here not because we like the way everybody else does things. We're all drawn here because of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're drawn here because of a person, if you're drawn anywhere because of a personality, you're not drawn to Jesus. You're drawn to something else, some new thing. But if we're drawn together as the Bible wants us to be drawn together, it's because of Jesus. Now, that's what the Spirit brings. This is what the Spirit promotes. Remember these things Jesus taught in John chapter 14 concerning the Holy Spirit and the, what he's going to bring to the table. He said in verse 26, he shall teach you all things and shall bring all things to your remembrance, whatever I have said. So the Spirit does not bring a particular agenda of his own, but the Holy Spirit comes to make Jesus to be everything that the Bible says he is to you personally. So that it's not just a theme of our church, but it's a living word in your heart. He really is all of this. In John chapter 15, he said that he shall testify of me when he comes. We're going to be pointed to Jesus. Jesus. 
in this church. And wherever you folks are from, wherever all of you are from, we are supposed to be, as the work of God, be pointed to Christ. He is the central figure. If we don't focus on him, we have to ask ourselves, what are we focused on? In John chapter 16, he said that he will guide you, in verse 13, he said, he will guide you into all truth. And he said in verse 14, he shall glorify me, for he shall receive of me and reveal it to you. That's what this whole message, a whole system of religion, of Christianity is all about. It's all about us being confronted, not only with our sins and our sinfulness, but confronted with a Savior who will lovingly forgive us and save us. And when he does, and we are brought to him as forgiven sinners, he said, the thing that makes all of this work is for a surrender and allegiance of you to him to lay down all of your opposition. Read the New Testament. Lay down all these things that have divided us. All these little things we held so dear that we're going to defend, and you got to lay it all down when it doesn't please the Lord. And that's what makes us one. That's what brings us into harmony with each other. This is how we grow up. This is how we grow in the Lord. We grow up into him in all things. We don't become more efficient at preaching and more efficient at money collection and more gifted in organization. That's fine when it's in its place, but what we're after is Christ. The unity that the Spirit brings is all about us being conformed to the image of Christ. Now, if we're not there, we're nowhere. We're just a clanging symbol. We're just a lot of Noise that people like clanging symbols, I guess, and they like a lot of noise. Let's go down to verse 11, 12 and 13. That's where we're going to be for the rest of the day, those three verses. We're all familiar with verses 11 through 13. Many of you that are a little older, you've heard of the five-fold ministry ever since you were baptized in the Holy Spirit. And the five-fold ministry and what they do and who they are. Well, in verse 11, it describes that. If you're young and new and you're growing up and you haven't heard all of that before, it's in verse 11. And these are gifts that Jesus gave to the church. In other words, from his heavenly viewpoint, he gave gifts unto men. And these are some of those gifts. Verse 8, it talks about the gifts. Verse 11, and he gave some to be apostles, he gave some to be prophets, he gave some to be evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Some think that's one office, which would make it a fourfold, but we're going to leave it fivefold. Pastors and teachers. In verse 12, for the perfecting of the saints for the work of ministry. For the edifying of the body of Christ, and verse 13 says, till we all come to the goal that God has for a church, to the unity of the faith, to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man. Now, those are the three things. Now, our goal and what we want and what a Christian should desire is verse 13, till we come. Could we say until means basically the same as till? Okay, so here's how you see it. God begins doing something, and this something is a divine heavenly work that is in process and will continue to be in process until something is accomplished, until we get somewhere. Now, what is the somewhere or what is the accomplishment till we all come to the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, and so forth? But we can't have verse 13 without verse 12. We can't just start in verse 13. We have to have verse 12 first. The saints have to be equipped. There has to be a sense of ministry or ministering amongst us. There must be this knowledge that we have a role to play as being members of his body. We're not just stagnant attendees to services. We have a function. 
There is something that we do, but it also begins with the first part of verse 12, the perfecting of the saints. We got to have that before we can do the ministry part or before we can do any edifying. So we can't get to verse 13 unless we get verse 12. And how can we ever get to verse 12 without verse 11? You can go to any church you want to. You can go to any meeting you want to. You can get frustrated with every place you've ever been if you want to. You can have your opinion on who's better and who. Go anywhere you want to. Churches in America are on every corner, they say. But unless it's anointed, unless it is a God send, it goes nowhere. It goes nowhere. When they organize the church, when they begin to incorporate the principles of the world into its order of service and Robert's rules of order, when we have to ask the government to look at us and honor us and will you accept us as a church so we can get tax breaks, when we begin to hire preachers and set up boards so that the preacher can't take over, so that the board protects the church, because we don't trust each other. You're asking too much to ask a bunch of believers to just do it God's way and trust him. Oh, no, we can't do that. So we're going to hire us a preacher. He would be called a hireling. We give him a salary, put him in a house. We tell him what he does. If he doesn't do it, there's a little group that will fire him, get another one, because he's not the head. And the church has become something that's very stagnant and very dead. But when people die, too, they can't see that. You just look for a system of religion because religion is what decent people have. I mean, if we're going to be decent people in a community, we've got to go to church. It really doesn't matter where you go. My daddy, he was Catholic. My brother was Catholic. They did all that all their life. My mother and I were belong to Christian church. We did that all of our lives until 1968 that everything changed. It was no longer just listening to a sermon. The heart began to yearn. The heart began to yearn for more. I don't mean a better speaker. I just mean an anointed speaker. That something from heaven would begin to flow. We can't take a whole lot of it because we're new in the Lord. We haven't learned his ways, but just give us enough of it. Like he said, when I send you into the promised land, I'm going to drive out the inhabitants little by little. Otherwise, you'll be overwhelmed. So I'm going to feed you little by little. And when you begin to taste and see what a true anointing is, oh, man. And then you begin to want that because it does something that's never been done before. You got convicted about your life. You became aware of something about you that's not like he wants. You begin to wrestle with issues in your life you've never wrestled with before, and you would never wrestle with unless there had been an anointing on what you heard. God could have left this whole room alone. In our little order of service, in our little first, second, and fourth stanza, and all the little things that we each, wherever you went, learned. We could be there today, hammer dead, sitting in quiet little meetings or big loud foot stomping meetings and never change. Jesus born in a manger, the stone rolled away, he was raised from the dead. Hallelujah. And yet none of that affects my daily life, my relationship with my wife or my relationship with you. It's like when the Corinthian church came together, he said, there's divisions among you. And I partly believe this. For when you all come together, like for the Lord's Supper, there's a group back there, there's a group here, there's a group there, there's a group there, and they have no sense of belonging to any other group. They do their own things, and that's their problem. I've heard stuff like that in my lifetime as a Christian. But there's got to be this anointing, this special something that can only come from God, that when it comes, it brings with it conviction and enlightenment and edification. Remember Paul prayed in Ephesians 
One, he said, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. It's that moment when your eyes are opened and you're no longer satisfied with just, well, I'm, you know, I guess I'm going to heaven. Something changes. Something from heaven touches the soul. And you begin to ponder things. And your life begins to take a turn and you begin to go in a different direction. You see, without the anointing on any service, wherever you've been, here, there, anywhere, without God's anointing, without his blessing on that meeting and our being there together, we're just having a meeting. We could get blessed. Boy, wasn't that a good praise sermon? And boy, wasn't the word good this morning? Yeah, what was it about? Oh, I don't know, but it was loud and everybody listened. But that's religion. It doesn't go home with you. It doesn't ride around in the car with you tomorrow. It's not listening to those phone conversations or some of those thumb-talking things that you do, that text message and, and some of the ugly stuff that you tolerate in your life. It's not dealing with that because you're not listening. And consequently, without any anointing, you become dead. You begin to die. Can you find Jeremiah right in the middle of your Bible? Jeremiah, look at chapter 3. Look at chapter 3 and verse 15. And I will give you shepherds or pastors or leaders or overseers after my own heart. Now let me ask you a question. If he gave something special, if he gave a gift, I'm not talking about a gift that graduated from a school that's looking for a good job. I'm talking about something that's sent by God. Something raised up by God. Something you wouldn't pick, but something God would. Would he anoint that? Would the words of that kind of a ministry affect you? It could. Not everybody sitting in a meeting like this will be affected by it. There's some people that have no heart for it, but some do. But he said, I will give you pastors according to my own heart, which shall feed you with what? Knowledge and understanding. Oh, I see it. That's what understanding does. Oh, man, I see it now. Oh, Lord, I see it. Oh, now we're guilty. I mean, now we're enlightened. In chapter 23, in verse 22, this is what the anointing does to the ministry that God sends. He said, if they had stood in my counsel and caused my people to hear my words, they would have made them as mad as hornets. You see, I'm not the smartest person in the world, but I'm smart enough to know that after all these years I've been standing here, a whole lot of people who used to hear all of this don't have an appetite for it anymore. And there are things that offend. Remember Jesus one time said about things he said, does this offend you? Does it still offend people? Well, of course it does. Would speaking in tongues offend a non-tongue-speaking church? Of course it would. Would wearing a head covering offend a charismatic church? At one time it didn't. It would now. Some of you in here would be offended by it. You didn't used to be offended by it, but you are now because something's happened. Either you were never really convicted following a fad or you were convicted and now you're conscious that nobody else is and you are and you quit. And I'll get to Christmas after a while. You're welcome. But he said, if they had stood in my counsel and caused my people to hear my words, then they would have turned them from their evil ways and from the evil of their doings. That's what the anointing does. That's what happens if you want it and you seek it. And when you find it, God dispenses it upon his people. It affects us. And it has to affect us because if we don't have that, let me ask you a question. What do we have? If we don't have conviction, 
If we're not being affected to a life-changing conviction, what, pray tell, do any of us have? We have religion. But what is the word? The word in, what is it, Hebrews 4 and verse 12, the word is like a two-edged sword. When it comes in, you know it. And when it comes in and it cuts and it divides, it makes clear to you what is of God and what isn't. It brings conviction that you're not and you should, or it blesses you and you say, praise God. But the word is like a two-edged sword, if it's anointed. When it's not anointed, you just look at your watch and say, well, he's only half through. He's only preached for 45 minutes. But if it's anointed... Your heart is being stirred. I don't know when I have ever, in all the years we've been here, I don't know when I've ever, ever come out here without praying for that one particular thing, the anointing. Sometimes it seemed like it didn't work. But there's always somebody it did work for. Because what do we have? What am I? What are you? What good are we without it? Again, go anywhere you want to and find some satisfaction. Well, at least we're in church. Do you really think you really think that'll work? Do you really think that just parking your carcass anywhere you want to makes it right? Well, there could be. Yes, there could. Maybe you should pray. We used to pray for that years ago, and we begin to be fed. People came out of churches many years ago. I was amongst them. We came out of churches because there was more to what God was demanding than we were getting or that we were allowed to do. And we began to come together, a little room full of people. All things were new. There were no restrictions anymore. You didn't have to worry about what somebody was thinking. We even learned to raise our hands all the way above your head. And we clap without being too concerned about clapping too loud. And we could sing like that without wondering who's watching. We just begin to get freed up, and then it just begin to come more and more like a wave. And boy, you got so excited about it. Oh, man, it was life. I mean, his words became life. We even sang in vacation Bible school. I didn't understand it. Sing them over again to me. Wonderful. You know, but it became life. Man doesn't live by word alone, but by every word. And you begin to realize that's true. It never was true before, but when God began to open my eyes, I began to see this. It began to draw me. It began to draw me. Now that brings me to verse 12. Now verse 12 mentions three things. And the first thing he mentions in this anointed ministry and what is being presented to me in a clear way. This is the design of ministry. This is what it's for, for the perfecting of the saints, for the perfecting of the saints. Brother Hamilton, what can that possibly mean? Perfecting of the saints. One translation says, for the training of the saints, the Bible in basic English. I don't have that Bible. It's on my computer. It says, for the training of the saints as servants in the church to the building up of the body of Christ, because it needs it. Another translation, Montgomery's New Testament said, in order to equip the saints for the work of serving and William's New Testament says, in order to fully equip his people for the work of serving. So it seems like that God's design here in this anointed ministry that he sends, apostles, prophets, you know, whatever he sends, its purpose is not to make a name for itself or see how big it can make the church or how popular it can be or how many gifts I can get to operate. The whole purpose is word. You're the people who need the word. I'm the person who needs to find out what it is and give it to you, and we both need to live by it. And so he says, for the perfecting of the saints. Now, I have a question here. While the word perfecting does not mean to make you perfect and without flaw, it does mean to put things in order. It means the restoring of anything to its place. 
Well, that would say this about us. If you're a visitor today, just feel sorry for us here in Shelbyville, but it means that we're not in place. We're here. No mistake in God picking you out of the crowd of this world and bringing you to himself. No problem there. It's just that what God brought to us needs to be adjusted. I know of no other body of believers. I'm sure there's one somewhere. I know of no other body of believers anywhere in this country like this one in the sense that most everybody here came from somewhere. For example, your visitors here today, how many of you live in this town before this church ever started? One, two, three, four. How many of you came here from somewhere else? Well, there you go. It means that God brought us all here and we're not in order. We're not in harmony. We're not the way God wants us to be yet. We don't function like he wants us to yet. We have many different directions. But the word perfecting here means to put in right working order. It's the word restore in Galatians 6.1. If you see a brother overtaken in a fall, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. That's what our word perfecting here means in Ephesians 4.12. Now, the question comes up to the theologians. If we're born again, and how clean are you when you're born again? I mean, you're born again. You got new life. The nature of God is given to you. Or if you are, as the Bible said, you are sanctified, set apart unto God. He chose you and set you apart for his own use. We're born again or we're sanctified or we're forgiven of all of our sins. We're seated in heavenly places with Christ. How can you add anything to that? If you're all of that, what do you mean perfected? Because a lot of people think like that. And therefore, no perfecting work takes place because, look, I'm saved, I'm seated, I'm sanctified, I'm planted in the courts of God. I mean, you can't make that better than it is. You can't make me better born again. You just can't do that. So what does he mean when he says we're sanctified? Well, I answer that like this, and you're familiar with this. I know you are. How many of us, when we were saved brought old baggage into the kingdom? How many of us brought our personalities into the kingdom? How many of us brought our hang-ups into the kingdom? How many of us brought a lot of stuff that's no good into the kingdom? Well, if you leave it alone, nothing works. We'll have a church over there, a church over there, a church here, a church here. We'll never get along with each other because I don't like the way they do things. So what do you do with it? Well, you begin teaching the Word. You come together, you begin to listen to the Word, you begin to realize the way we were raised was different. Some of you were raised very orderly and very much obedient and kind and nice. And some of us are raised, you know, like, you know, just sort of loose. Well, it's true. God brought here people that were spoiled growing up and brought people here who were stubborn and strong-headed and can't agree with anybody unless they agree with you. How many of you know this doesn't work as far as unity is concerned? That was a nervous laugh. But it doesn't work. The way we were raised, it's strict parents, unstrict parents, we were allowed to pout. We were allowed to argue and throw fits. You see, my generation was too far back. You couldn't do that. But today, they seem to be able to get by with it. They get by with it at home, and they get by with it in school. And you bring that to church. If you don't deal with that, your church is out of order. And what's in here today is what homes have brought in here. I mean, we're a conglomeration of homes and, of course, a few singles. That's why we get offended at some things that we hear because you think the preacher's attacking you. And, you know, there was this specific anointing and this courage that came with it to say some things you need to say because if you don't say it, these people are never going to get it. You know you're going to be unpopular for saying that. 
You know people are going to dislike you for saying that or doing it. You know that, but you have this compelling mandate from God to live on his terms whether men like it or not. You committed yourself to that. There's this surrender to, I surrender all. You do that because I have nothing else that I can stand before God with than that. Everything else will be judged. If I build on this foundation, I'm standing flesh and self, it'll all be burned. And don't forget, it wasn't long ago in here that we taught that in a great house there are not only good things, but there's a lot of stuff that shouldn't be. And then it said this, if a man therefore will purge himself from these, he shall be. And one of the things he shall be is useful to the Lord and sanctified. Now, how can a man purge himself from things if he doesn't know what those things are? How can you be purged from your pouting attitude or your gossipy spirit unless it is brought out in a message? Or how can your witchcraft in the home be exposed unless it is spoken of, this controlling spirit? I want my way and I'll do what I have to do. You can't have a church come together being built together as one if that kind of stuff isn't dealt with. At least expose. You can't make people deal with things, but you expose it. That's what ministry does. That's what God does in his word. He brings you where he wants you to be, and he begins to deal with each one of us about our lives. Maybe not every week, but there will come that time or that night in which you're sitting there, and the word slams into your heart like a hammer. Bam! And you go, oh, man, I am so guilty. Oh, boy. Or maybe you brought in here some experiences of your past. Maybe you were in the war, as some of you were, in a war of some sort, and had some difficult moments and times that you can't get out of your hard drive or your mind. These things kind of haunt you, and they make you feel like, you know, oh, God. And you bring that into a church. You bring a good person, good people. But these things, they're strongholds. They're strongholds. They are things that grip people and prevent them from surrendering to the lordship of Jesus. They just can't seem to let go of it. I'm such a bad person. I'm no good. I killed somebody once. I had an accident when I was drinking one time and somebody, and these things just haunt people. People that could be so useful to the Lord, but they're just haunted by these things. That's what they brought to the Lord. God saved them. Yes, he saved them. There's no question about saving them. But man, we have trouble being husbands or wives because he grew up in divorced homes. I did. And you don't know how a man's supposed to love a wife or how he's supposed to be a father. I love my dad. We just never was much there as far as training because you know, he was gone so much. So I'm coming in here with a lot of opinions I grew up in a matriarchal home, and my mom was the boss. My dad let her. And so I grew up with this thing about, I'll tell you one thing. That's a Kentucky colloquial. I'll tell you one thing, but they had a word to that. And ain't no woman ever going to tell me what to do. What are you laughing at? I'm not going to let a woman ever run over me. No, sir. Times I wish my daddy stood his ground, but I'll guarantee you one thing, and no woman ever going to run over Tom. And I thank God I didn't marry one that tried to, because I'd be single. <laughs> I'm telling you how handicapped I was when God saved me. I didn't know I had these problems because all I knew was I was saved and I was with other saved people. And we're having, oh, but I didn't know I had the problem until down the line, God began to settle us in to listening to the word. And then one day it came, teaching on the family. A lot of men can't be good fathers, good husbands because of the way they were raised and what they saw in their home. And, and it just, boom, pow. Oh, God. Oh, Lord, I see it. I'm such a selfish, self-serving person. And you see that. 
You could never admit it before, but because if you admit that, you're weak. You don't want to be weak anymore. You just want to be saved now. So you begin to confess your faults. You begin to acknowledge your sins. And maybe one of those days, the first time in your life, you told your wife, I'm sorry, it was my fault. And your whole structure clapped. You're not a man anymore. You're a girl. It was just God taking people like you and me and exposing us. Now, this exposure will either bless us or ruin us. Because if we're stubborn enough, we'll make excuses. Well, it's the way I was raised. You know, the reason I did this is because of the way I was raised. That's why I stuttered so much growing up, because I was raised that way. And so, see, it's not my fault. If it's not my fault, I don't have to deal with it. I don't have to deal with anything. It's not my fault. Or like a kid asked, just told his parent, I didn't ask to come into this world. The parent was thinking it's a real good thing. <laughs> Maybe it's your prior church life. Maybe the church life we used to have before we came into a meeting. I came out of the Christian church. I was structured. That is, to me, it was right if it did things right. The first time I was in Assembly of God Church in Louisville, we used to take people over by the car loads to get them filled with the Holy Ghost. We didn't know how to do it. We'd take them over there. They did. <laughs> and Pentecostal boys, hey, you want to be prayed for? Yeah, they go. We sit there back here in the back, and we don't know how to do it. But I had a problem in that church the first time I went because, first of all, I didn't get a bulletin when it came in. <laughs> there was no order of service. Nobody gave me a piece of paper telling me what God was going to do. They didn't sing any hymns. I, in fact, I didn't think I saw a hymn book. I saw a lady playing a piano that didn't even look at it. And I thought, where are we? Any key, any note? I thought, oh, my. And the preacher just walked out to the stage and said, well, praise the Lord. There's no melody, no hymn of entrance, no choir, nothing that I personally was used to. I had a problem with it. I thought, no, I don't know about all this stuff. Why? Because this was my church life. I wasn't used to anything else. And the preacher would say, we have any testimonies here tonight? I thought, you don't do that. That's not the way you do it. See, I could never function at that time in that church because I got this resistance to all of that. And unless you show me that my resistance is based on a religious spirit, a denominational spirit, I'm going to keep resisting. My idea of unity is finding another Christian church that does things uh, my way. That's unity. But as God began to break down all these strongholds, as the light began to shine in, as God began to say things that I'd never heard before, things that were anointed, and when those anointed words hit in my heart, I thought, oh, Lord, that's it. Boy. Or coming to a church where they function like that and they don't even vote. Well, who gets the offering? The preacher? Who finds out how much he's got? I don't know if anybody knows except his daughter. His wife wouldn't know. What, 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 what? You should listen to some of the conversations I've had with tax preparers through the years. <laughs> well, just do your double, double, you know, your X, double, X, three, four, four. Seven. And I say, well, we don't do that. You don't, you don't do that. How do y'all do it? They just, I put a box back there, and if they want to give, they do. If they don't, they don't. And whatever's in there is income. Well, all right. <laughs> all right. I pay all the bills, do all that stuff. Didn't ask for it, but I'm not going to be hired by anybody because God's people are not for sale. You or me, we're not for sale. I have no price tag on my head. 
But when I came into this, this church structure was in my system. I had to see things differently than I used to see it. I objected to so many things. And I remember the first time I heard somebody taught about holidays. About holidays. So? And somebody began teaching about the fact that holidays, holy days, they had their place in the Old Testament. And in every case, all those festival days and those three trips to Jerusalem a year and, and the holy convocations, there were seven of them, and all of these were pageantries that portrayed Christ in the Old Testament. And now when Christ came, all of that was fulfilled. It was done. There are no more holy days. Now they've been invented. They've been invented. And people have a lust for that kind of stuff, so they follow that. Well, I would have. But when I first heard about Christmas, for example, I really did protest. I thought, well, I'm a basketball coach. What am I going to do at the Christmas party at the school or the church is having this Christmas? What am I supposed to do? Say, I can't do that because I'm convicted? That's what I said. And the teachers whispered and they talked. The people in the community talked. The people in the church I was at talked. Why did they talk? Because they didn't like what you did. I was really convicted by it. Christmas, Christ, Mass. You don't need to be very far along in school to figure that out. Mass for Christ. Christ Mass? Who invented that? We'll get an encyclopedia. I don't need it. I don't want it. Not a verse in the Bible where Jesus ever said to celebrate his birth. They didn't even acknowledge it in the New Testament. They acknowledge his resurrection. They take communion to show forth his death until he comes, but not his birth. And yet today... You tell people, say, well, what are y'all doing for Christmas? Well, we don't do Christmas. You don't do Christmas. Aren't you Christians? Yeah. I left that a long time ago. And I hear reports all the time that people have made a 30, 35-year circle going right back to that same old stuff. They once went through deliverance to get out of it. But you see, when you bring stuff from your past into a church, it, it affects the way you see each other. For a while, there's going to be trouble. There's going to be confusion and fighting and arguing, but it takes time for all of this to be worked out. I remember I used to come home from college when I was at Moorhead. Wasn't any smarter than I ever was, but I was in college. Not come home to poor dumb folks back in Charlestown. Bless their hearts. They are so dumb, they don't know nothing, like I did. It was just the spirit that went with it. It elevated you to the place where if you got into any kind of conversation, you just had to sort of look down on these poor souls. See, I brought that into the kingdom. We all brought something in here. There's something in the ways about many of us that affect how we all work, how we all get along. But didn't Paul write, there must be divisions among you or schisms among you so that they who are approved will be known? God allows that stuff. It comes up. We are exposed. We either deal with it or we defend it and we fight for it and we justify it. I'm going to heaven because God loves me. Where's that at? course he loves his own but if you love him what does it say you will do you will obey his word how do you know it's his word you look and find out there's an anointing it's the work of the holy spirit to reveal to you this is the way you must walk in this way this is that perfecting work we began talking about in verse 12 this is being conformed romans 8 29 whom he predestined, he would conform him to the image of his son. Image means likeness. What I would call union. To be like Jesus. To be like Jesus. Don't we sing that? Yeah. 
to be Christ-like? Well, what happens to all these areas of my personality that are, well, sour? What happens to them? I can't be like Jesus acting like that, can I? Every time any of you gossip in this room, you're not like Christ. You got an area of your life you are unwilling to surrender to the cross. Anytime you throw fits and draw back, you're not like Christ. You've heard you should be, but you're not. You wives that protest everything your husband does, you're not Christ-like either. And you men that don't seem to have a care about your home, you don't either. We're just religious people with religious ideas, able to quote the Bible, but unwilling to let Christ have dominion over us. Christ-like. Being like Jesus, it's not easy. It is a difficult way to live because you die. You really do die. Sometimes your enemies are in your house. People are opposed to you. Religious people are. Oh, you believe in divine healing and have the appearance of sickness in your body and walk it out and confess you're healed and listen to the opposition. Because the church is so socked into the world, anything different from the world is an argument. But when you present those people with Christ, they gnash their teeth at you. I know they do. I told you, I had a preacher get up in the back of the room one time, walk up front and ask me to quit. Said, we made a mistake having you here tonight. What would you do? Shove him out of the way? <laughs> I walked out like everybody else did eventually. Let me show you how important it is for this perfecting work and this realization of who I am and my faults and my weaknesses and praying that God would cleanse me and that the refiner would send his fire into my life and baptize me with fire also and do this work. Let me show you why it's important. Turn to 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 4 and 5. Verse 4 says, The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They are mighty through God. To the pulling down of what? Now, time out. If the exposure of the flaws in my life is the exposure of strongholds, I talk too much. I'm always late coming to meetings. 10 o'clock miracle. They all get here at 10 o'clock, wedge themselves in the door trying to come in. Couldn't get here early if they tried Is it a flaw? Of course it's a flaw. It's not a big deal. No big deal. We don't pray before we get here. We seldom ever read our Bible in a week. We don't examine ourselves. It's just church. Because the word that's anointed is not going into your heart, but it's going into somebody's heart. Because if it goes into your heart, you're going to shape up. This is the perfecting work, the putting us in right order work. We've got to be exposed. Somebody has to preach to me. I need to hear the word. I don't want to just talk about it and beat my gums. I want it to get into my heart. Like he said, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Have you found 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5 yet? For the weapons of our warfare, in verse 4, are not carnal. They are mighty through God, or to God, to the pulling down of strongholds. Notice, casting down imaginations. In all these arid areas of your life, these high things that don't yield to God but elevate themselves above what God says. Casting down imaginations in every high thing that does what? And bringing into captivity every thought to Christ. Who does that? If Christ is not living in you, if the focus is not on him, how can you ever bring these feelings and thoughts and ideas How can you ever bring it all into the judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ inside of it? How can you do that? you got to be Christ-centered in your life. 
The church has to be Christ-centered. The message has to be Christ-centered. Everything has to do with him. We're not trying to be like each other or like the church over there or the church up there or the church down there. We're trying to be like Christ. Actually, not even trying to be a church so much as just trying to be members of that church. And the Spirit of God who brings us to unity of faith is the same one who will lead us into conformity with what he wants. Oh, Jesus, it has to be all about him. You can't just walk in a building somewhere and get that. You can't bring an empty heart into an empty room with an empty message and expect to get filled. When the desire of your heart is to be like Jesus, he's on your mind during the week. He's on your mind during the day. That raunchy, miserable music that people listen to today has to go. Can't listen to that anymore. You can't. It doesn't glorify anything but your baser nature. It's all about lust and me and mine. Everything has to surrender. So important is it, brothers and sisters, that Jesus said, if you don't take up a cross daily, you cannot be a disciple. You can't follow a myth and you can't follow a story. You follow a person. You follow a person. A person who has to be real to you. And if you don't have this in your heart, to bring every thought captive. Lord, examine me. Is this wrong? Am I like this? And he says, yes. Then you got to deal with it. Isn't it Romans 12, 2? Beginning with verse 1, put yourself on an altar, a living sacrifice, and be not conformed to this world, but be what? Transformed, made into a different creature? Of course you're born again. Of course, two people aren't married. They've only been married for an hour. They're not in harmony yet. They'll fight for it's over. And they'll either work it out and compromise and get together for the good of this union, or they will stand apart. It just depends on the fabric of their hearts. It just depends on how in the church, whether or not we begin to flow together and function together as believers seeking the same Christ. It depends on what's in our hearts. If you get offended when the truth is spoken, you won't make it. If you're caught gossiping, if you're caught lying or whatever you're doing, and there's no heartfelt surrender and shame because of that, you'll never change. You'll never change. You'll never change. The second thing he said, and I'll end with this, and I'll pick it up next week. The second thing he says for the work of ministry. Ministry is a word, I think it's pronounced diakonia. It's the word from which we get deacon. Same word translated deacon is translated ministry. And the whole idea behind it is service, serving. There are too many verses in the Bible to quote, especially in the epistles. There are many verses in the scripture that talk about how we relate to each other. And it's almost always humbling yourself to one another, submitting yourself to one another, seeking the good of your brother or your sister even before yourself or taking note of needs and being a part of being a need meter. It's all about us letting go of me, my, and mine, giving that to God to take care of us and beginning to be servants of the Lord. I don't care if you're rich. What did he say? Condescend to men of what? Low estate. Don't you think that because you're successful in having a gifted life that you are better? No, you're not. We're all equal here. No rich, no poor, no black, no white, no brown, no gray, no green. We're just all equal. God saved whoever he wants to. He puts them where he wants them to be. And in that place he puts them, they are a part of what he's doing. They are being 
As Ephesians 2 said, being built together into a holy temple in the Lord. And it will never work unless each individual part does its part. That's verse 16 of Ephesians 4. Unless that happens, we're back to just having a service, just a church service. Ministering to the body of Christ, loving each other, helping each other, caring for each other, even as God cared for you, forgiving one another, laying aside all of your, I must insist on my way. Read Romans 14. I mean, it's all about relationship. It's not for relationship for relationship's purpose. It is relationship that should be God-ordered that the anointing has put into your heart to follow. And you surrender to it. And you begin to see brothers and sisters as brothers and sisters. It's not easy for us in Shelbyville. We've come from so many places. We've come from the east, we've come from the west, we've come from the north, we've come from the south. We've so different in so many ways. Some folks say, well, they're not very loving down there. Well, hopefully we will be. It just takes a while for those that are willing to listen, to listen. Some are no better off being here than they were where they were. Some are better off. But God brought us here. And the only way God's going to be able to affect a change here is for one, us to have a heart to be changed and two, to have a clear word and a willingness to do it. And then he will begin to put it together. It will begin to be the body of Christ. His body in Shelbyville, in this little corner of Shelbyville. His body doing what it should be doing. And so I can begin at verse 13 next time. Let me just mention the edifying of the body of Christ. That's what we do. That's how we do it. We love each other. You make yourself useful to each other. You pray for one another. Let me close with this. You can't do that if you do your own thing. You go to the meetings you want to go to. And you don't go to the ones you don't want to go to. You know, some of the men's me, well, nothing ever going to happen there. I don't see any reason to be going there. Stay home. It just means that you're out of harmony with the rest of us. I told you you wouldn't like it. Do you really think, you really think that's an attitude that God put in your heart? Do you? Do you think this judging of everything gone all I never, do you really think that's of God? You ever heard the song leader sing songs? He'd think, oh, no. I have. I've said, uh. I don't like a lot of the new songs, but you know what I do? I sing. I think of the words and do my part. It's just a judgment call. I mean, just a little test. A little test. But we can't get to verse 13, folks. That's the big one next week. This is the goal of God. And whether we arrive there or not depends on how you're responding to verse 11. Bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, grant us wisdom and understanding of your word. Make us mindful of the presence and the leading of your spirit. Help us to realize that we can be like-minded as a group of people from many different places that we're not little judges and little policemen in the church, but that we're members one of another. Help us to understand that. And I pray this morning for conviction on all of us, myself and everybody here, and those who listen to it in the electronic world, that you'll convict us. Just give us a reason to deal with ourselves. And I ask you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand to your feet? Praise the name of Jesus. Praise the name of Jesus. Heals my
Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let me dismiss you with the word from the Bible. Speak unto Aaron and to his sons, saying, On this wise you shall bless the children of Israel, saying unto them. And in this wise this morning, I would like to do the same in blessing you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. In Jesus' name, amen.